Welcome to the Grace South Bay Church Podcast. I'm Matt Cabot, your host and elder at Grace South Bay. Each week we have a Q&A conversation with our pastors about their sermons. We talk theology and we get into the Bible. And we discuss how to live out our faith as Christians in the Silicon Valley and beyond. Today we continue our conversation on a sermon series from the book of James. In a sermon titled Partiality, Pastor Bob looks at what it means to treat people differently based on their economic status. We'll discuss how not to be partial and how to show mercy to everyone. All that and more is on the table today as we dive into James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. So, Bob, when James talks about partiality, what is he talking about? Well, Matt, he, he's certainly the example James is using suggests he's talking about making distinctions among people based on their perceived wealth and status, um, you know, what they can bring to the table, what they can bring to the community, making distinctions that amount to value judgments, right? You sit here in a good spot. You sit there in a, in a worthless spot, right, at my feet. Mm. And really, the technical language is under my footstool, which is physically impossible. But, like, that's, the, that's how low of a spot James yeah. is saying, right? So it's making value distinctions, uh, James says, ends up making us judges with evil thoughts. So here, partiality is assigning values to people and showing them different dignity and honor based on those assigned values, so maybe my next question is stupid then. Uh, why is this wrong? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, and that's what I try to get at it a lot in the sermon. It's like, what's wrong with this? I mean, the world does work this way. Um, this is how things get done. Um, so why is it wrong? And, you know, first off, very broadly, what Scripture says, of course, is that man's ways are not God's ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few things wrong with, with th- that James hits on here. First, he makes the point that God works among the poor, and it is the rich who are actually oppressing them. So, you know, the thing is, often what we publicly honor and aspire to is not very consistent with God's ways and character. You know, I mean, we talk about mm-hmm. life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the pursuit of happiness seems to be a lot about, you know, our own comfort and consumption of luxury items, right? And that's, mm-hmm. you know, what we yeah. aspire to in Silicon Valley oftentimes is that human power wealth, intellect, physical strength, whatever, these are not necessarily qualities to put on a pedestal. I mean, they can be blessings, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily to be put on a pedestal. Now, sometimes in our culture, we do put the right qualities on a pedestal, right? I mean, sometimes uh, bravery, sacrifice, honesty. I mean, you know, we we do get some things right to honor, Mm -hmm. um, and these are great characteristics and virtues to emulate, but these characteristics, though, are borne out over time, right? I mean, they cannot be communicated by initial appearances or impressions. Um, and so a lot of this is that God doesn't want us judging a book by its cover. But even if or when we do get the values right, when we, we, we then are tempted to make a hierarchy of importance based on that value. Um, so, for example, we, we can all admit that, you know, Bible knowledge is great, uh, and, and we can honor and congratulate people who have awesome Bible knowledge, what is partiality is beginning to rate people overall based on their Bible knowledge, how much mm-hmm. Bible knowledge they have, and then yeah. devaluing people based on that characteristic, based on not having much Bible knowledge. And so when you do that, when you devalue people based on a characteristic, whether it's truly virtuous or not, 
That is partiality, and mm. only God gets to judge. We don't get to take the place of God. Only God is in an objective position to judge and compare anyway. So when we practice partiality, we take the place of God, we devalue people, and, and we set up you know, our community and culture for going in the wrong direction. So what are some of the signs that might uh, point to us being guilty of the sin of partiality? You know, I think um, for us individually, I think a great metric is who you spend your time with uh, or who you spend your time on. Um, can you see a pattern in your interactions? Is there a type or sort of person that seems to get a lot more of your time? And is there a type or sort of person who you quickly move on from? Um, and, you know, this can go in a number of different directions. There's a, a good friend of mine um, who knows they have a problem with partiality. They don't like strong people, socially strong people, people hmm. who seem to be powerful in a community. They quickly dismiss and view in a negative light, right? So you can go uh, in all different directions with this. I mean, you can do this with the rich or poor, the pretty or ugly, the smart or less smart, whatever. I mean, you can turn it in whatever direction you want. Humans tend to make very quick, snap decisions and judgments about people. Um, and in the coming weeks, I would suggest, try to be mindful about those snap judgments you're making. When someone new comes into your orbit, do you initially have a positive or negative or indifferent feeling about them? Can you identify why? Why do you seem to show uh, more honor to them? Um, who do you seem to show more honor to? Who less? Who gets more time? Who gets less time? And, and it's an important question for a church to ask as well, right? Of, of those who visit the church, who stays? Who mm -hmm. ends up sticking around? Is there a pattern uh, to that uh, or a common identity marker? What kinds of people are in places of honor, leadership, power in the church, right? Are there certain cultural poverties, let's say homelessness, refugees, foster kids, human trafficking, whatever? Are there certain cultural poverties that the church is not willing to address or move towards? For both our individual and collective lives, are there people we've hurt? Can we see a trail of partiality in the people who are disappointed with us? And as always, one of the things we're supposed to do with God's Word is ask God to show us in this particular area where we might be sinning, right? We, we need to be open to conviction, and, and the Holy Spirit needs to do it. So let's ask. Can we show appreciation, maybe even to one of those shiny people you mentioned in the service, shiny versus dingy, yeah. uh, without being guilty of partiality? Yeah, absolutely, right? And in fact, God expects us to show appreciation, right? Um, we, we come to glorify and give thanks to God when we can identify His gifts and providence in others. But, but here's the thing. Are we pointing out just certain kinds of gifts and helps? Mm -hmm. Do only a, s a certain few kinds of people get our appreciation and recognition? Or do we learn to see what God is doing through all kinds of people, right? Do we show appreciation to everyone, since everyone is made in God's image and has something to offer the community, or to just a certain subset of people? And that's another way of getting to what James is talking about here. So by all means, show appreciation, by all means, recognize uh, gifts and abilities in people. Just make sure you're doing that consistently across the board. Does economic status correlate with spiritual status? In other words, does being poor automatically make you morally good, or being rich make you morally reprehensible? No, no. And But you know what? There are Christians over the years who have thought so, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you can even read some passages in Scripture that way, even some here in the book of James. But taking Scripture as a whole, you see many righteous, wealthy people, like Abraham and Job. In the Gospels, you see wicked, wealthy people saved, like mm-hmm. Matthew and Zacchaeus. Um, you see wealthy people bankroll the early church, like Lydia in Philippi. And if you read the book of Proverbs, you could conclude that poverty afflicts the lazy and foolish. So it's not this clear binary black and white division, and, and we need to be we need to be careful about that. And you know, there's even in modern modern times, there's examples of both extremes. There's liberation theology, mm-hmm. right, which says that God is on the side of the poor and you know is with those who are trying to uh, politically and, and, and militarily overturn uh, the wealthy uh, ruling class. And then you have the health and wealth gospel on the other side, mm, right. right, which says that. You know, if you have enough faith, you're going to be healthy and wealthy, and you just need to believe enough, and and God wants you to be rich. So, you know, even in our time, we see uh, people going way off the deep end on either on either end. Mm-hmm. In your sermon, you said that God is at work where the poor are, uh, but by almost every standard, we are a church full of rich people. Is God working in our lives? Yes, and and you know, and, and like I said in the sermon. He is because all of us are poor, and and I think this is one of the really important things to take away, um, you know, because we have a lot of language, particularly in the New Testament, about rich and poor, and and at that time it was enough to talk about in terms of status and wealth, um, and things are different now, and mm-hmm. and there isn't necessarily the same kind of hierarchy, though things are still hierarchical. Um, and so it's important for us to recognize that we all have places of poverty in our lives. There's poverty of relationships, poverty of strength, poverty of self-control, poverty of self-image, poverty mm-hmm. of dignity, poverty of courage, and most definitely poverty of spirit. Yeah. And you know, thank God that Jesus said he came to proclaim good news to the poor, and that, that, that the poor in spirit um, will receive the kingdom, right? The, the, the humble and merciful will receive mercy. The hungry and thirsty for righteousness uh, will, will, will receive it, right? So he came to call the sinner to repentance and mm. to die for them. So um, we can have every amount of confidence that God is at work wherever there is poverty in our lives. God is working to redeem and restore his image in us. Um, the way that we relate to him, the way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to creation. There's poverty in all four of those quadrants in each of our lives. The question is, will we stop chasing shiny things and shiny people and stop trying to pose as shiny long enough to actually recognize and meet God in those places of poverty? Will we own our own poverty rather than cover it up in shame and trying to be shiny? That's the question. Well, I got to tell you, that's that is a difficult thing to do in the valley that does not um, reward people it's not for rewarding. being dingy at all. So, Bob, you mentioned in your sermon um, the greatest commandment, and this was asked of Jesus uh, too. Um, what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment um, at, that that Jesus gives us is um, from Deuteronomy six, known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is one, or the only God. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, soul, strength. Um, and, and then without being asked, Jesus goes on to say that the second uh, 
greatest commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from Leviticus 19. And like I said in the sermon, these are summaries of both sides of the law, the the Mm -hmm. vertical side toward God, commandments one through four, and the the horizontal side uh, toward others, commandments five through ten. Jesus isn't stating something really all that new. Other rabbis at the time had said similar things, and it's clear that the Ten Commandments have a progression to them. But what we see throughout Scripture, the law, prophets, Psalms, into the New Testament, is that you cannot do one without the other. You cannot Mm. love God while being indifferent to your neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor while being indifferent to God. Loving God by necessity means you will also love your neighbor. And if you're not loving your neighbor who bears God's image— you are not loving God. So uh, if Jesus said this, I might be tempted. Some people might be tempted to say, ah, yes, but who is my neighbor? That's what we're always trying to do, right? We are always, yeah. and this is exactly the problem with Pharisees, is that you work on nailing down the specifics of the law so you know exactly where you stand and what you can mm. and cannot do. And and Jesus just never lets anyone get away with that, and that's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan when the expert in the law asks, well, who is my neighbor? Mm-hmm. And and the upshot is, of course, everyone is our neighbor. Um, and this is one of the important new steps that Jesus takes and is confirmed in the early church, because at the time of Jesus, Israel had gone to greater lengths above and beyond Scripture to separate themselves from the surrounding nations in their, in their practices, right? They, they had become experts at excluding people. And so Jesus and the apostles' message is that that time is over, right? Israel should be rebuked for doing that, for keeping the nations away. Um, Everyone now can be included, can receive God's Spirit, and be reconciled to God. The time has come. And like God said way back to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through Abraham and his family. Mm -hmm. So now is the time, Jesus is saying. The Tower of Babel is reversed at Pentecost. No more tribes and nations that need to be siloed and hostile toward each other. As Christians, we get to play the role of peacemaker. We get to bring tidings of good news. And Jesus also emphasized this in our personal relationships, in the way that he had time for the sinner and beggar, how he reached out to or received the socially marginal and excluded how he didn't care about his status and privileged. He lived a life of treating everyone as his neighbor, and he calls us and empowers us to do the same thing. And what we see in in Scripture and throughout church history is when the church does that, when Christians do that, there's an explosion of of conversion and faith. Wow, can you imagine what the church could do these days, if we treated everyone as our neighbor? Again, right now, because right there, there is this poverty of connection and poverty right. of community, even in a place like Silicon Valley, that if we, if we learn to serve each other and if we learn to serve and love our neighbors, um, that would do incredible things for drawing people to Jesus, I'm convinced. Yeah, me too. So what is the, the world's message concerning people of lower socioeconomic status, and how can followers of Jesus disrupt that message? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's what we're talking about, right? And, and, of course, there's a politically correct message uh, that often says people of lower socioeconomic status are victims. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is sometimes true, uh, but it can also lead to condescension and paternalism uh, from, you know, the upper classes. Um, But for most people, even the politically correct ones, the actual poor are cursed. They're not worth your time, Mm. and they should be avoided. This is how most people treat others of lower status. 
no matter the person's politics or what they say or what they post on social media. And this is why Jesus rails against it all the time in the Gospels. Now, Jesus' people can disrupt the message by showing honor and dignity to those who usually don't receive it from the culture. Now, sometimes that means acts of charity and relief, but even more so, um, it looks like giving time and social capital to these people, partnering with them as they address their poverty, not robbing them of agency, building up their agency if possible. Um, so, so lending your own credibility and legitimacy and status to them. And, and beyond that, the church just needs to call BS constantly on man's value system that we always mm-hmm. get caught up in. We have to consistently call sin, sin. Greed, judging by appearances, building power and status to insulate ourselves and promote our own comfort. This is just sin, and God hates it. Now, here's the good news, Matt. Jesus doesn't say that poverty is our problem to solve. Mm-hmm. Poverty relief is not the church's highest calling. We go through life proclaiming the gospel and living out its implication in our individual lives, families, communities, so on and so forth. And if we want to experience God and see him work powerfully in us and through us, that is more likely to happen as we move towards poverty, uh, mm. the, the people in poverty and areas of poverty. So in, in uh, Jesus's economy, there is no flyover country. <laughs> Man, that's a, that is a perfect, perfect way to say it. Good. Uh, what is mercy, and why should we show it? You know, technically you might say um, mercy is withholding legitimate condemnation. You're, you're passing over a just sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, forgiveness of debt, uh, whether it's a moral debt, social debt, financial debt, whatever. The kind of mercy we're talking about here is a little derivative. James is calling people to uh, not judge based on appearances, right? To not make distinctions, to have mercy rather than judgment. Well, you know, what does it mean to show mercy to a stranger that you've never had contact with? There's nothing to forgive. Um, But if you are tempted to see this person as socially deficient, as a social debtor, they don't measure up to society's standards, you are likely to judge and condemn them for that, right? Mm -hmm. And you will treat them accordingly, uh, dismissively. So James is saying we must withhold silent judgment and condemnation. That's mercy, right? The the stupid social scorecard is rubbish and satanic, Mm. and we announce God's kingdom when we show dignity to people uh, others don't value, right? So in this case, showing mercy means withholding judgment, treating people equally as image bearers of God, and extending dignity to people who receive it less in our culture. And the primary reason why we show that is because we have been shown mercy from God, right? Because mm-hmm. we are infinitely inferior to him, and we have infinitely failed to live up to basic standards uh, that he has given us. So he owes us nothing other than condemnation, but instead he has passed over that, he has withheld judgment, and he has shown us mercy in the giving, uh, uh, giving us of his son, Jesus. Now we can have peace with him, and he has dealt with our sin and deficiency, right? So we are called to do similarly in our various uh, social, horizontal interactions. Does showing mercy um, lead to, I don't know, moral relativism in, in a sense that we can't correct people? No, no. In fact, showing mercy uh, means sometimes we must correct people. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul says it's the church's job to judge its members, 
um, and but not those outside the church. And what he means by that is mm. um, holding people accountable uh, who say they want to follow Jesus. So, you know, if you are on public record saying I want to follow Jesus, um, then that means you are committing yourself to Jesus' ways, and and Jesus' people uh, need to help hold you accountable to that. By the way, that's why I've taken the bumper stickers off my car. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've never, <laughs> never, ever had the Christian fish on my car. Um, but but the, the key is when to challenge people on their beliefs uh, or behavior, right? And, and in order to hear uh, a loving uh, correction or challenge, people need to know they are already respected and cared about by the mm. person challenging them, right? It's the same for all of us, and we see this pattern in Scripture, right? First, we read what God has done to love us and save us and show us mercy, then we are given God's commands and call to obedience, right? So we should never reduce someone down to their sin, however grave it might be, but Mm -hmm. we actually aren't showing them dignity if we treat them as if their actions and words have no consequences. Right. So we always aim to correct from a position of hope and love what Jesus has done for this person and is still doing, right? Love always hopes, right? It always believes Mm. the best. It always sees God working in a positive direction in someone's life. So we always correct out of that spirit. The hoped-for goal of correction is repentance on the other person's part. And if they repent, wonderful, you've won your brother. If they do not, well, that might mean the church has to create more distance between that person and them. But even that is done in the hope of repentance, with a spirit of mercy. How might showing mercy change the way we interact on social media? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked, Matt. Yeah, I thought I'd ask that to you. <laughs> uh, you know, first, showing mercy on social media probably means interacting less on social media. There you go. Uh, yes. You know, that, that might be Dumping a good it. step. Um, certainly, right, if, if we're talking about mercy as withholding judgment— um, then, then on social media, it probably means resisting the urge to fire off a comment or, you know, make one of those angry faces, uh, mm-hmm. angry face responses. Social media seems to work best when you are asking for help, for advice, or sharing good news. It doesn't work so well to sort out differences, right, because we lose all that is communicated in each other's faces and tone of voice, um, and in addition to that, when someone reposts some article that's just false or coming from a different worldview than yours, right, you, you need to fight to see this person as more than that post. Um, you, you can't judge based on appearances and on this one data point that is really important to you but does not sum up this whole person. right? Judging someone by their posts on Facebook is very similar to judging someone based on their clothes. Mm. It significantly reduces the person and allows you to miss God's image in them. And I'm sure all of us say, yeah, yeah, I know that. But then when the way that you interact on social media can be fairly harsh, and, and you reduce people to straw men, and and it's just and, and, and you don't communicate in a very fair way. If you do end up engaging in a back and forth, Mercy means assuming the best about the other person. Hmm. It, it means showing them the dignity of actually trying to understand and hear them uh, and, and not just win an argument uh, because we know others are watching, right? I mean, this is Facebook, so right. you're interacting with someone, but a lot of other people are watching. Sometimes it means sticking up for someone who's being swarmed. Um, one of the only times I've engaged publicly over the, over the last 10 years was recently. 
um, one of my former students uh, at King's Academy called out the whole King's Academy uh, oh, yes. faculty. I remember that actually uh, yep. for for voting for Trump, mm-hmm. and uh, you know basically in his opinion, you know trashing uh, the principles uh, that that the the faculty had taught him, uh, or, or you know calling them hypocrites basically. And and you know me, I'm no Trump apologist, right? But I did try to write a respectful post suggesting why a thoughtful conservative Christian might legitimately vote for Trump. And, you know, I tried to be respectful, and I think it was a respectful exchange. I was trying to help him move away from some self-righteousness, but I was also trying to defend the reputation uh, yeah. of some of my old colleagues. And and I, I meant it to be an act of mercy. I hope I hope it appeared as such, and, and I hope people took it that way. So, you know, that's that's what I got. I, I don't engage much. Um, and, and I think when we do engage beyond, you know, c- celebrating something good that happened in someone's life, offering advice to someone who's asking for it, when we do engage, we need to be very, very careful and, and continue checking where our hearts are at. And maybe all of us need to put James' other exhortation right next to our computer or phone. Be slow to speak, <laughs> <That'd be nice. laughs> quick to hear, and slow to anger. I think would be a good motto Great for us Great idea. As well. That should be like uh, <laughs> that should be the Grace's bumper sticker, right? We uh, hand that out to everyone. This is this is actually. I, I might even put that one on my car. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob, thanks again for your time this morning. Lots of good practical advice in this letter, and the sermons have been great. Glad to be here, Matt. Yeah. The title of Bob's sermon is Partiality. It's the fourth sermon in our series from the book of James. You can find that sermon and all our sermons in this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. You can also find a link on our website to ask questions for this podcast. We'd love to have you join us Sundays for in-person outdoor worship, We meet at 11 a.m. in the courtyard of Crossroads Bible Church in San Jose. So look for that sign-up email from one of our pastors. If you're not getting those emails, we would encourage you to visit our website, again, gracesouthbay.com, and click on the Connect button at the top. Fill out the Connect card, and one of our pastors will reach out to you. You can also submit a prayer request using the Prayer button at the top of our website. If you can't join us for in-person worship, we are live streaming our service on Facebook and YouTube. So join us at 11 or whenever it, because it's available after uh, it, it airs. We know these are challenging times, so let us know how we can care for you. We have pastors and elders, youth leaders, and a women's care team ready to help. We're just an email or a phone call away. We'll be back next week with another episode of the GSB podcast. So stay tuned and stay healthy. We look forward to our next time together. Now, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for listening.